evening, I would like uh, to talk about the role of the teacher. Because often on the spiritual path, people wonder about do they need to find a teacher and what kind of teacher and things like that. So I'd like to look a little around that. And as I mentioned before, uh, I think there is three types of teachers in uh, Buddhism. And so in a way, when we say, oh, do I need a teacher or I want a teacher, I think in a way one has to ask oneself, but why? Why do I want to do that? And what kind of teacher I am thinking about? And so the three types are the guru, the master, and the spiritual friend. So in the Tibetan tradition, we find the role of the teacher as a guru. And so in a way there, the idea is of surrender, of devotion. And in a way, you need to see the teacher as a Buddha. You see the, the, the teacher is like the Buddha. And in a way, the problem here, I could say, in, is that you must make sure that the teacher is great enough that it's worth surrendering to him or her. I think one has to be very careful. And that's why the, the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said that before you take a guru, a teacher as a guru, then you need to check them for five years. And then if they really look fine on all count of ethics, meditation, wisdom, then you take them as a guru. And so in a way, just because in a way we give a, by surrendering to somebody else, in a way we give a lot of power, in a way, to that person, even if it's in imagination. Then you have the more what one finds more in the Japanese Zen tradition, the teacher as a master. And so you very much have a relationship of master and disciple. And there, there is very much this idea that the master or the mistress is there to check you, to test you, to probe you. So it's actually quite, a, sometimes it can be a little a, kind of a very testing relationship. And actually at the same time, it's supposed to be quite a close relationship. And very much with that, there is a bit the idea of loyalty, that you really must remain with that one teacher. So that in a way, both are committed to each other. But it can be a little restrained. And I think it seems to me you need to have a, a character which doesn't mind to be tested if uh, you want to enter in that kind of relationship. Then you have also the, the role of the teacher, as you find either in Korea or in the Theravada tradition, or the teacher as a spiritual friend, as a guide. So there the idea is that the, the teacher has a little more experience, and so the teacher will give instruction, will give encouragement, and also is like an example, an inspiration. And to me personally, I found that last one uh, the easiest to deal with in a way, because then, then you can have many people who can be your teacher, because there are many guides. Because I think the problem with wanting a teacher is generally you want the best one. So you want to find the special one. But then generally there is lots of people around them. And actually it's quite difficult to have a close relationship. When actually if you see that there are quite a few people who can be like guide, who can be like spiritual friend, then actually I think there is more, more scope and also more scope for learning. 
And in a way, to see that the, the role of the teacher, I mean, what is the role of the teacher? For me, it's to empower the disciple, not to disempower the disciple. So the teacher is really, in a way, there to make oneself redundant. And the teacher is very much there to help the person to uncover their potential. Because in a way, nobody else can do it. I think this is one important thing about meditation, is that the teacher cannot meditate instead of you. I mean, we can meditate. Nobody can do our meditation for us. Of course, it would be nice if there was a teacher who could just zap us, big, this is it, you know, enlighten, next one, big. But it's not like that. You know, they have to do their own meditation, and we have to do our own walking on the path. And to me, this is what I kind of learned when I was in Korea. The first experience once I had was with uh, one master. I used to go and visit him during the free season. So I took a bus, and then I walked an hour to go to see the master. And I went there one day, and I bowed to the master as we did, and I said, Master, Master. What should I do to make my question vivid and bright? And the master just sat there. So I waited a little. Master, master, you will, won't you say a few words? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, you know already. And that's all. That's all I got. Three words. And I walked so far. So I came out and I thought, hmm, I felt a little short-changed, you know, three words for all that kind of work. And then as I was walking back, I suddenly realized that actually he was right. I knew what I had to do. The only thing is I had to do it. For him to say it would not make a difference. What would make a difference is me applying it. And to me, this actually gave me great confidence, great faith, actually, these three words. But I think also, in a way, a teacher is also there to kind of also encourage us to really go a little beyond our limits, not to force us, but in a way to inspire us to go beyond our limits. And to me, this is one of the great... Uh, a uh, thing Master Kuzan, uh, my teacher in Korea, did. When I joined the, the meditation, and I was supposed to do 10 hours of meditation a day, from 3 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. And it was a lot of meditation. And I never meditated like that, ever. So I found it extremely difficult. I would sit, and I could not breathe, and I wanted to get out. And, oh, la, 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 it was so tough. So what I did was to come just for the first sitting, because generally there were two or three or four together, but generally I would come to just do the first one of any session. And then at the end of it, I would think, oh, this is so hard. I must have something much more useful to do than, you know, waste my time, you know, here. So I would find, you know, helping in the kitchen, learning Korean, and always good reason. This went on for a few days. And then Master Cousin came one day to sit with us. So 
So I said, oh, he's here. So I must make an effort, you know. I sort of sat cross-legged, you know. What is this? What is this? What is this? You know, and I really tried hard for 50 minutes. And then the bear, the jukpi, happened. And it was so tiring. I was so exhausted that I thought, he can stay. I am off. So I went off. And he noticed it, that I did not come back. So then when I came back again, the, the leader of the hall had a dictionary in hand, because I did not know Korean then, and he said, you know, the master said, so we kind of looked together. And I always remembered, he said, Okchiro Chamta, you must bear beyond strength. And I thought, ah, the master said, I must bear beyond strength. And I thought, well, they've been doing this for the last thousand years sitting 10 hours a day, and nobody died of it. So possibly I could give it a try. <laughs> and in a way, Jesus' word, you know, it broke through my kind of, you know, being stuck in my habit, stuck in my comfort. And then I did the whole schedule, and I could do it. I realized I could do it. And then I was the first one to arrive. But he really helped me greatly there by, in a way, pointing out I could go beyond my limits. So I think, in a way, that's what a teacher does not do the work for us. But I think a teacher, in a way, inspires us to do the work. That, to me, is one important point. And then another thing I wanted to share with you tonight was uh, four reliances. And this you find in the, Tibet, in the Tibetan tradition. And I think they are wonderful. And it's on the spiritual path what is it you should rely on? So, first one, they are very, very pithy. First one, rely on the teaching, not on the person. Because often that's what happens with a teacher. We see a teacher, and he or she is really charismatic, and we think, wow, amazing, wow, yes, yes, you know, I want this, I want that. But it's not so much what they say. It's just because, in a way, the, the way they look or the way they express themselves or the, the force field they have or whatever. And we think, oh, yeah. But actually, I think we have to be very careful because I don't think that necessarily the charisma of somebody is going to help us in the practice. I mean, what is important is what do they teach? Can I understand that teaching? Can I apply that teaching? Is that teaching useful? I mean, I had a friend. He was such a good person. For me, he was really an exemplar of a human being. He was a really wonderful, wholesome, kind, wise, and compassionate human being. And he did lots of meditation, and he was teaching. But when he taught... He was so uncharismatic, the poor thing. Mm -hmm. and, and because of that, people, in a way, did not really listen to him. And I felt it was such a pity. Because I felt, you know, what he taught was very good, what he taught. And just his being, I think, it was such a good example. But to me, that kind of showed me something, that we have to be careful, in a way, to think the, that the person is charismatic is more important then what is the teaching of that person? <laughs> then the next one, 
rely on the meaning rather than the words alone. Rely on the meaning rather than the words alone. And again, I think on the spiritual path, we can be so easily seduced by words. We hear about freedom. I want that. We hear about truth. Mm, I want one of those. And so in a way to be careful that we are not just seduced by the word. And actually really again, what is the meaning of the word? Can I really, again, apply it? Can I use it? Does it make sense? And I remember when we used to have these, I used to live in Totnes with a guru appearing on the high street. One, we had one who was really about freedom. You had to be free. This was, a, I kept hearing all my friends were talking about freedom, their freedom. And then later on, I heard this story. I was appalled. That, you know, they all considered they were so free that the parents were free to do what they want. The children were free to do what they want, which meant that parents could go uh, to America, left the children who were relatively young at home because they were free. And then, of course, the neighbor had to take care of the children. They were not free. But that's another story. And so, in a way, to, to be careful, sometimes we can be so mesmerized by words but really to look into the meaning. What is this meaning? Does it mean something to me in my life? Can I apply it? Then the next one, this is a little more complicated. Rely on what is unambiguous rather than what is ambiguous. And this is something about the spiritual kind of path that often you, you have this very mystical, very poetic, and you think, ah, I like this. This is wonderful. And I remember I had the, especially in Korea, which was a Zen tradition. And the Zen tradition had lots, lots of kind of weird saying and weird story. And so I was doing translation of the master teaching, and Stephen was helping with the English. And one day we were working, and Stephen says, but this does not make sense. And I said to him, but who cares? It's Zen. It doesn't need to make sense, you know. You know he, he, and Stephen said, no, 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 there is a logic to it. You know, even if it's Zen, it has to be logical. I thought, ah, oh, Okay. And actually, I found it subsequently very useful. Because once I was translating the master teaching in Korean, I translated in English. And so he says something. And I translate. It is like an eye, like an eyeball, falling onto a hot stove. <laughs> and I thought, first I thought, this is Zen. Then I thought, but this is not a horror movie. <laughs> then I remember Stephen said it's logical. And I realized my mistake. That actually the same word, the same sound, noon goes for eyeball and for snow. So I changed the translation. It is like a snowflake falling on a hot stove and dissolving, which made more sense. <laughs> so 
in a way, to, to kind of look. I think, you know, because often there is this idea, oh, it's spiritual, it's beyond this, beyond that. But still, I think, you know, again, does it make sense, you know? Does it make sense in my life when I'm with my children, when I'm in the supermarket? Then the last one, rely on experiential wisdom rather than knowledge. And again, here, to see that, you know, when there is a teacher, of course, a teacher can teach on many different things. But I think what is richer is when the teacher teaches from experience and not just from knowledge. There is this famous story in the Zen tradition of this scholar who has read the whole Bodhi, all the Buddhist texts, and he knows everything. And he gives lots of great teaching, and everybody comes to listen to him. And then one day, very few people come. And he said, but why that? And then somebody said, oh, there is a great Zen master over there. Everybody has gone to him. And you think, why does he know that guy? Anyway, I know everything. I have read everything. So he decided to go and kind of, you know, battle with the Zen master. So he takes his books, and on the way he stops at a tea, little tea place with an old lady. And so the old lady said, you know, he said, I want a cup of tea. She said, oh, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the great Zen master, you know, and I'll show him I know everything. And then the lady said, what is emptiness? Show me emptiness now, and you'll get a cup of tea. And he could not. And so then he realized maybe he needed to practice with the Zen master. And then, so that's the story. <laughs> so in a way, to really, and I think it's the same for us, that we have to, in a way, to trust our own experience, that we have to know for ourselves, that it's not just words. Words, yes, we can learn the words. The words can inspire us. But in a way, we need to apply the words. We need to have the experience ourselves. Because in a way, and then I wanted to talk about a little about back to awakening. To the awakening I was talking about, in a way, is to dissolve the obstacle to wisdom and compassion. So in a way, a teacher is somebody who has practiced enough that some of the obstacle to their wisdom and compassion has gone down. But that doesn't mean that the teacher is perfect, or that doesn't mean that the teacher is omniscient. Because often I think there is this idea that the teacher either is perfect or knows everything. And as Stephen was mentioning already, I mean, the Buddha was not a geographer. You know, he thought the world was flat and there was Mount uh, Sumeru in the middle and there was some lapis lazuli around. I mean, it doesn't look like that. You know, so in a way, we have to be careful to think. In a way, the assumption that we give. I mean, my teacher, Master Kuzan, had practiced greatly. He was really a great practitioner, great wisdom, great compassion. But one thing for sure, he was not a geographer and he was not an historian. And when I traveled with him, we went to America together. And when we came back, they would, I mean, it, in those days, it was special to travel out of Korea in the 70s, beginning of the 80s. 
So he would come back and it would be a big thing for him to tell everybody he went to America and he saw this and he saw that and I would be sitting there and groaning because it was not very accurate facts. <laughs> so for example, the Mayflower in Boston, he, was t- he went to Boston, he saw the Mayflower and then he was telling everybody he saw the boat of Christopher Columbus. <laughs> you know, what to do? <laughs> So in a way, to see, we, we have to be careful of those assumptions, the projection we put on the teacher. Generally, they know, I would say, about meditation. They know about wisdom. They know about compassion. But we have to be careful to make them like they know everything or even they know our own mind. This also we have to be careful, that idea that kind of the, the, the teacher can read the mind of the people, especially if they wear funny clothes and have slanted eyes. They can see, they can know everything. And my experience, not at all. I mean, when I was in Korea, there was this young French monk who was persuaded that Master Cousin could read his mind. And so he would ask me time to time to go and translate for him. And before that, he would prepare himself for half an hour trying to kind of do things to his mind so Master Cousin would not read anything bad in it. <laughs> and I tried to tell him he cannot read your mind. I'm totally sure of that. <laughs> that did not have much effect. And I think what is important to see is that the, the teacher, I mean, they might have some great insight, some awakening, but we have to be careful that they will still be. Because this is, I think this is one of the, the problems when we talk of unconditioned. As Stephen was pointed out, it's unconditioned from greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's not unconditioned from culture, from experience. And to me, this is one something I notice about teachers, is that in a way, they are limited in terms of what we think they can do by their culture. They are limited by their experience. They are limited by their conditions. And so, because I saw it again and again, that Master Kuzan had a certain cultural framework, and, and he was limited by that cultural framework, because we cannot know everything. We are, to me, in terms of meditation, the last thing that will go is culture. Our culture is so embedded in us, in our bone. And I don't think that the meditation is about going beyond our culture, but maybe not to be so fixed on it, maybe not so tightly identified with it. In the same way about experience, we have to be careful because often teachers will say, this is the best way, this is the only way. Why do they say that? Because this is the best way for them. And it could be the only way they tried, because that's the one they found in their culture. Master Cousin was totally, was so sure that the question was it. This was it. Nothing else would do. This was the way. And to this day, they have a tape in uh, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts which you, anybody can consult to this day, when Master Cousin went there, he was invited to give a talk during a three-month meditation. They still do, did this in those days. After his visit, they stopped. 
And so he came, he came after a month. They've been a month in, watching the breath, doing awareness practice. And here come this great then master who looked quite charismatic and quite convincing. And he sat there and he said, watching the breath is a waste of time. It's no better than being a dead corpse. <laughs> so, uh, it did create a bit of doubt. And Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzbar were quite busy for a few days in interviews. And they never invited him again. But I think it was just because he never, he, he, he never did it. He did not do it, so he could not know about it. So within his own experience, of course, he was a great Zen master about the questioning. And also he had great wisdom and compassion, but about awareness practice, he had no idea. I mean, once one, a friend of mine managed to convince him it was not so bad, but it took a long time. <laughs> so in a way, we have to be careful of that when we look at teacher, that there will actually be however great, however wise, there would be some limitation in terms of culture, in terms of experience, in terms of conditions. And then I wanted to share with you uh, these few quotes. And uh, I uh, put a copy of this page outside on the board so you can look at them more if you want. This is four quotes from the Buddha which to me is very interesting about uh, the teacher, the way one is a teacher. And the first quote for me is very interesting in terms of what Stephen talked a little in the discussion about the freedom we have to act or not act in that way. And to me this, is, this quote comes from the beginning of the practice of the Buddha. And I feel for me it's a turning point in his practice. And that's what he says. I thought, why do I dwell in constant expectation of the fear and dread? Why not subdue that fear and dread while maintaining the posture I am in when it comes to me? And while I walked, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither stood nor sat nor lay down till I had subdued that fear and dread. And to me, this is a point where suddenly the Buddha is sitting in the forest and he's constantly afraid. And suddenly he thinks, why am I constantly afraid? Can't I do something about this? Why can't I kind of, in a way, transform, be differently with this fear and dread? Instead of being caught by it, and agitated by it, can I be differently? And so then he decides, I will stay in the posture I am in, that it be to sit, to walk, to stand, or to lie down, and I will stay in that posture until that fear and dread has passed away. And he did it, and it worked. He realized it was possible. And there is two or three passages like that, when you suddenly see, ah, could not I be differently with this negative state? And he does it, and it works. And to me, this is, in a way, the, the moment where he saw the, the point of freedom, the fact that he could do something about this. 
Then the next one I find is very interesting in terms of the a teacher. A man's virtue or a woman's virtue is to be known by living with him or her and then only if we attend to that person, not for a little while, but over a long period. A man's purity is to be known by talking with him. A man's fortitude is to be known in time of adversity. A man's understanding is to be known by discussing with him, and not only for a short time, but for a long time if we neither fail in attention nor lack of understanding. So again, here what we have is that the Buddha said, you cannot know a person just like that. Actually, you have to really to know if the person is ethical. You have to live with that person for a long time. And if you want to know how pure they are, how virtuous they are, again, you have to talk with them. Then if you want to know if they have, you know, some kind of like fortitude, you have to see them when things are difficult. And if you want to understand the person understanding, you have to discuss with them, not just for a short time, but for a long time. And you also need to have some understanding. And so again, it's kind of looking at the whole person. Again, it's not just a meditative state, it's not just an insight, but it's like the whole person is transformed, is working on themselves. Then there is a, an advice to Rahula, his son. Any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future, present, in oneself or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near. Again, you can see the Buddha, he really looks at all the conditions, should all be regarded as it actually is with right understanding thus. This is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. And to me, I find it, again, is kind of really looking when we encounter some material thing. How can we creatively engage with it? And he's saying, by seeing this is not mine, this is not what I am, I cannot reduce myself to this, this is not myself. So it's again to see how quickly we identify. This is my problem, this is this. And we kind of, in a way we grasp, and then we want to protect it, or we want to defend it, or there is some grasping around. But he says the key is in a way the understanding. This is not mine, this is not what I am. This is not myself. And recently I had a very interesting experience. Stephen goes to India and he leads a guided tour to the traditional uh, holy places of Buddhism. And so the, the company, and he does this with Tricycle Magazine, and so you know all his expenses and all the hotel, everything is paid. And then at the end, the group, 20, 30 people can give uh, some dana if they want, because he doesn't get any uh, fee. And generally what Stephen does, since he gets all his expenses paid for, and then he can be in India and study the life of the Buddha and that, whatever dana comes, he generally uh, 
tells a friend to give it to charity in India for women's uh, charity, etc., etc. And so that's what happened. And he doesn't know how much people give, but he just says, you know, whatever they give, just give it to the charity. And recently a friend of ours came, and he was so upset. And I had not known about this, because this is a few years back. And he was saying, but do you realize, do you realize that Stephen gave that sum of money to India? (laughs) And we said, yes. But but it's a big amount of money. You are not rich. And we said, yes, you know. And he was so upset. And I had the feeling that we did not grasp at that money. It was gone. We... I mean, that was Stephen's intention. He, he did not put any amount on it. And I felt nearly that I, you know, I needed to grasp for my friend. He was grasping at what was ours, <laughs> supposed to be ours. And it was a very interesting experience because he was so upset about it. And he kept saying, but that amount. And we said, yes. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, and to see sometimes it's not even ours. And we still kind of grasp at it. So in a way to kind of look when there is tension, this kind of, this is mine, this is myself. And I think what he was thinking in himself, if it had been me, I would not have given away that sum of money. I mean, that's very much the feeling I had. So it was by proxy, grasping by proxy. That was an interesting experience. Then the last one, this is a wonderful quote from, uh, from the Buddha again to Rahula, his son. Try to be like water, Rahula. When people wash away these things with water, for that water is not ashamed, humiliated, or disgusted. Try to be like fire, Rahula. When fire burns these things, for that fire is not ashamed, humiliated, or disgusted. Try to be like space, Rahula, for by so doing, when agreeable or disagreeable contacts arise, they will not invade your heart and stay there, for space has no standing place of its own. And so in a way, again here, I think the Buddha is trying to express this idea of non-grasping, of creative engagement. Like he says, you know, people... In order to wash clothes, they use lots of water. And so the dirt goes out with the water. But the, the, the water is not bothered by the dirt. It does not identify with the dirt. The water does not say, I am dirty because there is dirt in me. In the same way, the fire, people burn dirty rubbish with fire. But again, the fire does not identify with the dirt saying, I am dirty. Just the fire burns the dirt. And he said the same with the space, that whatever contacts arise, of course you are conscious of it, you come into contact with it, but it does not invade your heart and stay there, for space has no standing of its own. So in a way, this is what I think we are cultivating here, this feeling of spaciousness, that where things can arise, we can see them, we can engage with them, and then they can pass away. So, that's what I wanted to say. Are there any 
questions or comments? Yes. Um, I, I teach at a university, and um, I was just thinking while you were talking about uh, how what you're saying applies in that context of a higher education institution where there are hundreds of students, too many of them, and not enough teachers to teach them. Um, and they're all so young and don't really know what they're doing. Um, but I think one of the biggest dilemmas now is how education has become a commodity. Um, and they're paying to uh, get knowledge. Um, and I was just thinking about how that challenges the, the traditional authority of the teacher, where they're supposed to have power over the students. Instead, it's almost reversed, where they have a kind of consumer authority. And I'm just wondering whether that is happening in spiritual life as well, as almost every area of social life becomes commodified in some way in, in capitalist well, society. I mean, I think it, 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 it could be that way. I think, yeah. again, it's like anything. That's why, personally, I think if we have this notion of the spiritual friend, if you have the notion of creative engagement, then we try to, you have two, I mean, two person or a person and a group of people who are in a way kind of coming together, sharing a space together. And then, you know, personally, that it be in education, uh, academic education or whatever, in a way, the teacher at some level is, yes, you could just give the knowledge, you want it, you pay for it, I give you. I mean, you can do that. But at the same time, in a way, it, seem, it seems to lack the spirit. It seems to lack kind of, you know, creativity on your part and creativity on the student part. And to me, this is in a way the greatest challenge of any teaching is actually kind of that creative aspect of it. That you don't, because sometimes you think, I must cover all the bases. Personally, I think, no, no, you do what you can within what you know, what you experience, and then you try to communicate it in a way which people can understand, can resonate within your capacity. So I think, again, one has to see what is my limitation and also what is a group limitation and also what is my creativity and their creativity. And so, again, I think it's, also depends on, on the engagement. And I presume if one is very tired, one is, I just give the knowledge, and if one feels more fired up and energetic, then you feel, yes, I can be more creative here. But I think it's a challenge, you know, for any teacher in any walk of life. Yes? You know, I would I would agree there because I have met uh, some of the younger. Uh, I'm always uh, find it very fascinating uh, to meet some of the younger ones. And again, I think this is a little. And then this can apply to the West and to Asia as well. I think in a way it's back to this modern education in a way. 
if you have modern education, then there is more this idea of equality. There is more this idea of uh, it's a different way. It's a diff kind of very different relationship. So I think yes, some of the young one might start to have a very different way of uh, doing things. And I've seen some of them, and it's uh, very interesting, very creative. Okay, if there is nothing else, let's walk.